thank you, Philip, very much for uh, making time to speak with our investors today. Um, you know, just to give a context to uh, today's call, we will try to touch upon, uh, you know, global, of course, I mean, uh, global events, including, uh, you know, the U.S. Uh, uh, Fed's current stance, uh, uh, Philip's view on uh, currency rates and inflation. Uh, we also touch upon, um, you know, some takeaways from the late U.S. employment reports, uh, post which I request uh, Philip to opine on, uh, you know, the current state of vaccine development, where he has hosted a few calls with one of the preeminent, uh, you know, uh, persons involved in uh, vaccine research in U.K. Uh, he's in the thick of things as far as COVID vaccine is concerned. So. Philip can share some insights from the calls he's done, uh, he's hosted uh, uh, on those on that topic. And finally, to wrap up, we'll just briefly discuss uh, the upcoming U.S. elections, uh, uh, you know, and its potential impact on uh, uh, global uh, equity markets. Uh, with that uh, um, uh, quick, uh, you know, um, uh, quick outline, I will just ask Philip to uh, speak a little bit about what seems to be uh, a policy of currency debasement uh, uh, by by U.S. Uh, I just wanted to actually sort of get his opinion on whether, uh, given the high rate of federal debt at this point, uh, a template of uh, high inflation, high growth, uh, combined with some fiscal responsibility, a template that got U.S. out of trouble in uh, uh, post-World War II, uh, is that something that's uh, relevant even today? Uh, so, so uh, Philip, over to you. Uh, you know, just a quick thought on that before we move on to the next topic. Sure. Um, first off, hi, Michael. Um, good afternoon, everybody. Thanks for attending the call. Um, we've seen some fairly uh, abrupt changes in U.S. policy this year because of the outbreak of COVID, and indeed, a week or two ago, what we had was a, a change in or the publication of the change in the Fed's policy framework. Um, this has really evolved over the years, uh, but prior to a couple of weeks ago, the Fed was really aiming at a, a 2% inflation target over the medium term. And what changed was that effectively, the Fed is now saying we're looking at an inflation averaging target, whereby if we undershoot inflation, um, over a number of years, we will compensate for that and overshoot um, looking forward. Now, now that has brought, brought some questions as to, well, is the Fed simply trying to get inflation up um, to deflate the value of the debt away? And although I'm typically quite a cynical person, I think there are some genuine reasons um, for what the Fed has done. So I'll, I'll, I'll explain that a little bit. Um, first off, I think the Fed fully realizes that in recent years in the post-crisis environment, it has undershot the inflation target. And um, if, if you take into account that the, the Fed's favored inflation measure is not the CPI, it's um, the, the PCE deflator. And over the past 10 years, that's averaged one and a half percent. So on average, it's undershot by a half percentage point. And the, the danger here is that, you know, the Fed's credibility could be eroded um, and particularly in the current environment that inflation expectations drift down. And what happens when expectations of inflation over the medium term fall is that that raises the real rate of interest. And if you have a policy rate which is at or close to zero, it becomes very difficult to ease monetary policy through interest rates. And that's because effectively you've got a zero bound on, on Fed rates. You could go into negative territory, but the Fed's very unwilling to do that. And really the the model, I guess, which you'd be looking at is Japan, where you know you had deflation for a number of years and rates at zero. Bank of Japan could, could do very little about it. So the Fed is primarily trying to head off a Japanese type situation. Now on the currency, um, certainly we've had um, President Donald Trump in the past complaining about the strong dollar. But I think as far as US policymakers as a whole are concerned, they don't feel that the dollar is too you know, disinflationary. It, it's not really hitting the economy too badly. And there's also a case of be careful what you wish for. Um, if, you're, if you keep saying you want a, a, 
a weaker currency, um, you might get that and more. On debt deflation, I mean, certainly Muckle is spot on that, you know, post the debt buildup after World War II in the mid-1940s, one of the ways that countries achieved their rectified fiscal situations was via higher inflation, deflating the debt away. Now, I would argue that that's more difficult this time around for three reasons. Firstly, that you can't fool investors like that anymore. They're more sophisticated. Number two, you're running high deficits. Um, you have to fund them. You've got a high level of outstanding debt. And of course, as that debt matures, you have to roll it over. And you are constantly having to issue a high volume of debt, in the US's case, um, treasuries. And if markets get wind of the fact that you are trying to deflate your debt pile away, um, the price of your debt will fall, the interest rate on your debt will rise. So that becomes even more difficult to do. And the third point, um, and I guess other countries feel this even more than the states, but just under 10% of US government debt is inflation linked, they're tips. And so even if you are successful in raising inflation, you're not going to deflate your, tip, deflate your tips away. They're simply going to compensate investors um, for that higher inflation. So I think the Fed is sophisticated and, and wary enough not to do that. Um, I mean, yes, you could argue that there's probably some administration pressure to try and you know, get inflation up and, and do something. But I think that the shift in the Fed's framework that we heard the other week it's not a case of subterfuge. There's a, a, a proper and a genuine reason for the Fed to have shifted to that framework. Um, you know, just taking on from there, uh, uh, Philip, you know, in, in my conversation, uh, uh, conversation with you, you've been talking about, you know, a complex relationship between, uh, you know, uh, policy rates uh, and balance sheet when it comes to the euro and the dollar. Uh, just uh, you had some thoughts on how uh, you know uh, the balance sheet will taper versus uh, when the rates will rate uh, uh, rates will be raised again, and how that that may impact uh, media uh, uh, near to medium term view on your currencies. Could you just elaborate a little bit on that, and you know take us through your thoughts on where you think think the currency market could settle? Yeah, sure. Um, actually, it's a nice thought thinking about tightening monetary policy in the sense that what that implies is that you know we've got over the pandemic and we've had a few years of growth and and, and things are quotes normal um obviously we're not there at the moment and I, I guess we are some years away from that happening policy post financial crisis by the central banks was to say right we want to get rates up first and then we'll start reversing our qe and we've had some thoughts about whether that's going to apply this time around. And then you have to say, okay, well, what's different? And the, the, the most obvious thing that's different is the, the size of central bank balance sheets in the sense that, you know, we did see some shrinkage of the balance sheet, i.e. QE, QE reversal um, from the Fed, but nothing from um, the Bank of England, and, and certainly nothing from the European Central Bank. Um, and it, in, in certain comments from central bankers, they're saying, look, um, you know, we, we could be uncomfortable with um, an extremely large balance sheet. And our guess is that the policy priority in certain cases, when it comes to the point of tightening policy, will be, okay, firstly, obviously, you, you have to have stopped QE for a while, but then Perhaps the first policy is to say, let's get our balance sheet down. Um, we'll reverse the QE. We'll, we'll sell some of the bonds that we've got on our balance sheet back into the market. And, you know, there, there's a debate as to how small the balance sheet would be. And, you know, we had this from the Fed towards the back end of last year. Um, but in general, our guess is that the Fed will do that. It will shrink its balance sheet first. And then the Bank of England actually has explicitly said that, we are becoming a little bit uncomfortable with how big our balance sheet might be when it comes to tightening. We'll probably reverse the QE first. Um, what you then might see is, right, let's monitor the situation for perhaps six months to a year. It might become then 
appropriate to start lifting interest rates. And that's becoming our central view over the medium term um, in the US and the UK. So, you know, just to give you an idea of our illustrative thinking, we, we suspect the Fed will, will, will stop net QE sometime in 2022. It'll shrink its balance sheet from um, back end of 2023 and perhaps hike interest rates in, in mid-2025. So now that's quite an extended timescale, but don't forget we've got the new Fed policy framework that's just been announced because it's effectively going to compensate for inflation undershoots, you would expect it to start the tightening process later. And that's been built into those thoughts. The, the interesting central bank in this respect is the European Central Bank. And it, we think it's, it's going to continue conducting QE until the middle of next year. It's running what's called the Pandemic Emergency uh, Purchase Programme, which is effectively buying 1.35 trillion euros of bonds plus its normal asset purchase program as well. We think it will stop then. Um, hopefully, we, we hope, you know, in a couple of years after that, there'll be some debate as to, you know, how to start tightening policy because the economy is strengthened, because um, inflation prospects look stronger. We think that its first priority will, will be to raise rates. And the key difference between the ECB and the Bank of England and the Fed in this respect is that it has negative rates. So just as a reminder, its main policy rate is the deposit rate, which currently stands at minus 50 basis points. And it's really debatable as to what it worries about more, negative rates or a large balance sheet. But our suspicion is with you know, the German contingent having quite a weight in terms of the policy decisions, or at least the noise on policy decisions, it will choose to raise rates before it shrinks the balance sheet. And that is, again, uh, becoming more entrenched in our thinking. So you might actually see the ECB raising rates towards the end of 2023, um, you know, first hike to minus 40 basis points, which would actually make it the first of those three central banks to raise interest rates. Not the first to tighten, but to take interest rate action, which, and if you look at precedence over the last few decades, I mean, that that that, that would be a one-off. But the, the key ingredient here is how concerned the central bank is about just having negative policy rates indefinitely. How does this affect currencies? And it, it's, it's difficult because you know, this will just be one factor that affects you know, what's going on in currencies. And our starting point is that if you look at the euro against the dollar, it's probably undervalued um, against the um, greenback. Um, if you look at what's happened over the past four to five months, the euro's probably appreciated 10%, um, which is one reason perhaps why Donald Trump has been less vocal about the, the strength of the dollar. Um, but we, we think it's still modestly undervalued overall. And the medium term view has to be, look, it's not going to stay at these levels forever. It will go towards and possibly over equilibrium. And the other point here is, of course, that in the euro area, inflation is lower than in the US. And so for any given nominal exchange rate, if you have that inflation differential, it means that your currency um, gains value. So the real value of your, your currency is falling. Um, so that is really our medium term view that, you know, you see the euro gaining against the US dollar. Um, and, you know, this morning it was about 118. We've got an end 2021 target of 125. And, you know, perhaps after that, you continue to see it appreciate. One question we do get a lot from clients is, are we expecting a collapse in the US dollar? Um, well, now, a collapse in the major currency is, is something that is rarely ever a central view with, with any currency forecaster. Um, if you look at the conventional metrics, it has to be said they don't look great in the States. You know, even before the pandemic, a very high budget deficit, high debt, current account imbalance, you know, has, has to be said some institutional doubts about the integrity of the current administration. And those things, you know, if they persist, could cause a further weakening in the greenback. But, you know, you have to say against what? Um, other investors are saying, well, is the euro area sustainable? Um, do you expect 
the um, emerging market currencies as a block to appreciate against the dollar. So, you know, one has to remember it's not just a matter of looking at what's going on in the States. You know, currency pairs by definition also involve metrics in, in, in other economies or, or, or countries. So there's also been some talk about perhaps abandoning the dollar as a reserve currency. Um, partly because of the facts that I've just mentioned. I don't think you can dismiss this totally. Um, world currency regimes do get realigned, um, albeit uh, not very often. But one point is when you talk to investors is that, look, you know, if, if you've got a large holding in treasuries, for example, which other single market is going to be as deep and as liquid? You know, do you want to put your money into Eurozone markets? Well, it's not really one market. Um, do you still have doubts about the integrity of the single currency? Um, okay, um, how about Chinese markets? Well, do, do you really want to replace your treasuries with Chinese bonds? And, you know, you just haven't got liquidity there. So, you know, this thing might happen in due course. I wouldn't rule it out. But, there, you know, there's quite a lot of time for that to happen. Um, and so rather suggest a collapse in the dollar, uh, that's not our view. Um, we'd rather suggest, you know, there's, there is probably going to be a medium-term softening, you know, partly um, uh, predicated on you know, fundamentals and purchasing power. Okay, thanks, Philip. Uh, that, is, uh, that, is, that is an excellent explanation. Uh, uh, Philip, just, uh, you know, I'm going to weave in a question from uh, uh, one of our participants as well. Uh, which is on inflation outlook, uh, you know, as well as uh, what is uh, the inflation expectation being priced in the market right now? The yield curves, uh, uh, maybe from tips as well. Uh, you know, we, we're talking uh, about US, and maybe maybe if you can yeah, opine a little bit upon Europe as well. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, that's a really interesting question, um, and and so is the issue of whether you know the the, the post-pandemic environment. Is, is going to be one of higher inflation or lower inflation. So I'll start by addressing the, the market question first. Um, we got lots of questions um, over this, and in, in, including your own clients, Mukul, on whether um, you know, we were looking at higher inflation because what we saw was a, you know, a drift upwards in US Treasury yields. Uh, was that signaling a big rise in inflation? And it, it's quite interesting if you if you break, for example, a ten-year Treasury yield down into the, you know, if you like the tips component, i.e., the real yield, and um, the break-even component, which makes up the rest of the nominal yield. What was going on there? And what's been happening is that um, the real component, the tips yield, stopped falling. And there's been yeah, quite a, a trend reduction in, in the real yield over time, but particularly, obviously, since February, March time. And I think it was back in August, if I remember, mid-August, if I remember my timing correctly, that you know, at a yield of around, I think it was about minus one at 10 years real, it stopped falling. Now, what's been happening with break-even components is that, you know, break-even yields or the inflation expectations component, if you want to call it that, um, carried on rising. But that has been rising since you know, March, April time. Now, does that mean that markets are expecting sharply higher inflation? Um, I'd argue no, it doesn't, because you saw a massive collapse in break-even yields at the start of the pandemic. And where you are at the moment, which is at around 1.7% at the 10-year area, this is break-even yields, you're, you know, just about where you were in the fourth quarter of last year. So you, you've sort of normalised there as markets have realised that, you know, we're not entering this sort of massive, massively long recession. And therefore, inflation expectations have drifted up, drifted up to more normal levels. So markets are certainly not expecting a, a surge up in inflation. And they've also abandoned the fear that, you know, you basically have a deflationary situation. Um, now, I, I, I can answer the, the, the COVID um, question briefly, if you like. Um, is this inflationary? Um, I mean, I can discuss this in more depth, but effectively, one theory is that um, because of COVID, businesses are having to take more precautions. Um, the corporates, and I, I speak to lots of corporates, are they're, they're saying that they are going to have to reorganize their logistics. 
they would rather not be dependent on China for goods so much. Now, okay, two issues there. Number one, um, that is going to raise your costs because if you could source your components elsewhere, you'd have done it previously. So almost by definition, you're, you, you are raising your costs. Um, secondly, can you actually diversify from China? And I think, you know, if you take, I don't know, it, a, a simple product like a zip fastener, um, if I remember this correctly, there's one city, is it Xiaotao in China that produces 80% of the world's zip fasteners? If everyone tries to diversify out of there, I mean, you simply can't do it. And so if it's impossible, what you do is you hold more inventory and that takes more of your working capital. You have more warehousing costs and it does raise your costs. So if you like, that's a bit of an insurance policy. But those two examples are, you know, how businesses may face higher costs. Now, will they pass that on in terms of higher prices? Quite possibly, yes. Is that a big enough event to have a permanent effect on inflation and then we think well no it won't and you are unlikely to get permanently higher inflation unless you see a response from the labor market and what we've had since the start of the pandemic is a big rise in unemployment sure you've seen unemployment come down in the us for technical reasons but you know it's still more than double where it was pre-pandemic and so where's the higher wage inflation going to come from? It's not there. Um, are you suffering from, you know, higher, much higher demand, driving up commodity prices? Well, not overall, obviously. So I, I really have trouble in buying into the, the higher inflation argument. I mean, yes, of course, companies will have higher costs and we'll pass them on. Um, what you will see is you know, relative price shifts as well. And perhaps touching on an example I've just given um, is, well, let's have a look at some um, residential house prices against or retail space, even better, retail space against warehousing space. Certainly in the UK, what we've seen is a big shift towards online, accelerating the prior trend. Um, you know, there you are talking, obviously, about more warehousing to store, you know, Amazon goods. So you've got a, a a relative price shift there and that might also be just as relevant in the goods market as well but the idea of inflation you know going up from an average of say one and a half percent over the last 10 years to somewhere you know three four percent I, I really don't see it just to quickly summarize before we uh, uh, move to the next topic um, so you're thinking a modestly lower dollar uh, uh, low rates low inflation in the near to medium term uh, it's fairly consistent view across the board. So, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, moving on to the next topic, uh, um, uh, Philip, uh, you know, I know you've hosted quite a few uh, of, uh, events on vaccine development. You're trying to track that. Uh, and I won't sort of want to dwell too much on it, but just a few quick takeaways on what you're hearing from people close, uh, uh, close on the ground, uh, uh, that. And uh, the secondly, I mean, sitting in Europe, there's been some increase uh, in in uh, in case resurgence in some uh, some countries. Uh, is that is that uh, uh, you know a, an economic concern that that you, you your team is thinking about? So two part question uh, uh, related though. Any any brief insights on these would be helpful. Yeah, there are lots of things which which we're noticing about the um, uh, the COVID situation generally. Um, let me try and sort of bring them all into one answer. Um, globally, um, reported cases have leveled out, and I know that's different in India. It's different in most of Western Europe and more recently, including the UK. In states, if anything, the trend has, has gone down a little bit again. Um, in terms of how will Europe deal with rising cases, how serious is it? You. <sighs> If you look at I mean, Spain is the worst example of um, rising cases. I mean, it, 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 it's pretty awful. And the things we're hearing here is that um, the rising cases was triggered initially by fruit pickers moving from um, area to area and sharing it with each other and, and, and moving it on in, in various areas. More recently, what you've seen is an unlocking of the economy which almost by definition puts people closer together and, and that increases the transmission. 
Uh, and also, um, younger people um, have basically got bored with social distancing. And it, it's been proven that the infection rates began to rise across younger cohorts and then they've transmitted it to older people. So the question is, how concerned should we be? Yes, we should be concerned. But what's happened since February is that the amount of testing has been exponential. So in February and March, it was really only people going to hospital that were getting COVID tests. So your, your positive um, positives were, were, were huge. Um, what's happening now is that the testing is happening right across the population. And number one, you're picking up more cases. And number two, you're picking up people that have got very mild symptoms or are completely asymptomatic, which you wouldn't have known about back in you know, February, March, April even. Um, so that's one point. Another point is that, yeah, you've got um, younger people catching it. And although they tend to transmit it to older people, they show fewer symptoms and therefore what you know the you have less of a an effect on, on on economic activity that way third point is that various countries have had different degrees of success here but if you test you know where the virus is and even in the uk where, where i'd argue that the testing has been shocking shockingly bad largely that if you have an outbreak in a city you can confine the city or bits of that city. And, and that's what's happened in, in bits of England specifically. And that averts the need for a full lockdown and it stops the virus spreading. So it's, you know, that sort of, if you like, test and trace system is instrumental in protecting the economy in, in that sense. The other major development, of course, is um, progress towards a vaccine. And the various people I speak to are becoming more optimistic that something is going to be operative by early 2021. There are hopes of something by the end of this year, but that looks a bit optimistic. Um, there was one case where AstraZeneca is um, developing a vaccine. It's in phase three trials now um, via um, Oxford University, and um, they ran into a, an issue um, a day or so ago with one patient, uh, one trialist becoming ill. Um, it seems that that could be a response to the vaccine if it's the case and that will delay the vaccine. But typically, I, I think the average vaccine takes 12 years to develop. <laughs> and these guys are trying to do it within a, a, a period of nine months and accelerating all the trials. So it's a big ask. But there seems to be a lot of optimism that even if the AstraZeneca project is delayed, by a number of months, then there are a number of other different technical vaccines which are still in phase three trials. I think there are to a total of eight, if I remember correctly, um, that could well be up and running next year. And once you have a vaccine, once you can distribute it, that's when you can practice less social distancing. That's when more people are confident about going out and spending. And you know, that's the point where you begin to say, right, let's look towards some sort of normality. Got it. Uh, uh, thanks, uh, thanks, Philip. And the last question before we open up uh, uh, to uh, Q&A. Uh, just, you know, on uh, the upcoming U.S. election, um, you know, uh, what's your uh, central case, whether we're going to be uh, seeing four more years or, uh, you know, we'll see uh, a change. Uh, and it's not, as we discussed, it's not just the presidential uh, election we're speaking about. Uh, it's it's uh, control of the Senate as well, uh, and once you have control of the houses and the presidency, uh, the policies can take a very different route. So just quick thoughts on that, uh, and finally, if, if the Democrats do come in uh, and with full power uh, of the houses behind them, uh, you know, do do the equity markets have to start pricing in a different scenario? Yeah, indeed. Um, first off, I've got to say I'm politically neutral, so I'm not going to say whether four more years is a good thing or a bad year or a bad thing. Um, OK, if you start off with what's going on, presidential election, 3rd of November, you get the entire House of Representatives elected and somewhere around a third of the Senate. It's, it's, at the moment, it's 35 seats being contested out of the 100. Um, what are the polls saying? Polls are basically saying Trump is going to lose. It, it's pretty simple. Um, Biden's got a lead of about 7% on a national basis. 
We know that the US operates an electoral college system, so the key is really to see how the two are doing in battleground states. And again there, Biden has got a clear lead. It's not impossible, Trump reverses it, but at the moment it's looking like a Biden victory, it, it has to be said. So, okay, how about the other um, arms? Um, how about Congress? Well, the House of Representatives, Democrats hold it already. Um, very much the favourites to, to hold on. So that's quite simple. The Senate's the interesting one. And at the moment, I think the Republicans have got 53 seats to 47. Um, they are defending um, 23 out of the 35 seats. So you think, oh, the Republicans are playing defence. Um, they've got more to lose. But the elections, if you look at where the states are, they, they are in deep red Republican states where they are unlikely to lose. So it's more competitive than you think. Added to that, the Democrats defending Alabama of all states, where former Senator Jeff Sessions is um, standing again for the Republicans. He's odds on to, to win and beat Doug Jones, the incumbent Democrat. So the Democrats have got some work to do if they're going to win the Senate. And I think it's going to be very close, too close to call. You know, if if I were to call it, you know, perhaps the Republicans will hold on. Um, now, Biden's policy is, look, we need to raise taxes. I, I don't think he would dare to raise taxes immediately because the economy is still fragile. But he's talking about, you know, higher corporate taxes, capital gains, et cetera, et cetera. He is going to need a, a clean sweep i.e. a Democratic Senate to be able to do that. He might not get it. Um, in which case you, you, you see compromise, perhaps some gridlock, um, but you, you, you don't see big tax increases. Um, so really, I mean, all the elections are interesting, of course, but I, you know, we suspect that the, the key part of November the 3rd will be who wins the Senate, because it could tip the difference between a full democratic agenda and a compromised one. You need to unmute uh, Mukul. Uh, thanks, Vapna. Uh, Philips, uh, thanks a lot uh, for your insights today. Uh, with that, I would um, uh, you know request our uh, investor participants uh, to come in with questions and. Uh, um, you know, yeah, over to you. Uh, yeah, just a reminder to all the participants, if you have a question, please raise your hand and I'll unmute you In case you want to put in a question in the chat box, please write in the chat box and we'll take your question immediately. Thank you. Okul, over to you. Sure. Um... So, Philip, uh, just in the meantime, <clears throat> you commented, um, uh, you know, on the um, on the U.S. Uh, unemployment report, which has been unusually strong. Uh, seen, uh, we have a survey which, you know, maybe is not as scientific uh, in India as well, which is also showing uh, some normalization of employment after after a very drastic drop. Um, so, any any sort of uh, you know uh, takeaways uh, from the sharp recovery in uh, employment at least that we're seeing in the US? Uh, if you can quickly sort of uh, come, come through on that. Yeah, one of the defining features of the US labor market is, of course, its flexibility. It's a hire and fire economy, and if firms are struggling, they will fire their employees straight away. If they think there's a reason to reverse that they will hire them back and, and, and indeed that's what's happened and the economy has been supported by checks to the unemployed um you know it, it, it's quite a simple model so you know what we saw in the uk was employees being furloughed i.e being kept on a sort of temporary um not working but still employed so the unemployment numbers in the uk really haven't risen different model in the us hire and fire fired unemployment checks to those laid off. And then as the economy began to unlock, they were rehired. And, and that's why you saw the you know, massive spike in unemployment and a big fall. Um, if anything, the labor market is still continuing to normalize, um, though at a less rapid pace. You know, the last week's employment numbers were actually 
pretty good. The unemployment rate fell by around two percentage points to 8.4%, 8, 8 um, if I can remember that correctly. Um, it's likely to fall. Are we likely to get to below 4%? No, um, not in the immediate future. Um, one reason is that there's been no agreement on a, a fiscal stimulus bill or the latest fiscal stimulus bill. Now, Congress is back. Um, the two sides, either Democrats and the Republicans, arguably three sides because you've got the administration there as well. Trump wants to cut payroll taxes. The congressional Republicans don't. Um, so it's just it's just complicated the mix. But, you know, Congress is back. You know, perhaps we'll get a stimulus bill over the next couple of weeks. And, you know, that would be a very positive thing for markets. But I think in the meantime, the labor market continues to improve. But, you know, there will be some tapering off and that tapering off will be, you know, way, way um, above I, unemployment levels above the three and a half percent that, you know, we, we sort of got used to in the pre-pandemic environment. Got it. So, um, uh, at this point, I'll just uh, wait a little for uh, uh, any, uh, uh, if there's any question out there, otherwise uh, we can, we can uh, I have a few and then we can wrap up. Uh, Swapna, can you announce? Yes, while we uh, are yet to receive uh, more questions, just a reminder to all participants, if you have a question, uh, please put it in the chat box or you can raise your hand and I'll unmute you. Thank you. Uh, so, Philip, uh, you know, this is uh, something that's probably uh, close to action in Asia. Uh, you know, let's say we do get a democratic win. Uh, is part of the reason why, uh, uh, you know, um, for optimism longer term in India is uh, some sort of a manufacturing shift happening from China uh, to other countries and India has suddenly become a, a, a player in that theme as well, uh, you know, because we've just suddenly become more aggressive because of the geopolitical situation between India and China. Um, <clears throat> The entire uh, uh, shift got started or predicated or got a push because of the tariffs put in by the Trump administration, which clearly, you know, signaled a long-term strategy or or intent of the government to move the uh, uh, move the uh, move supply chain from China. The total dependence you have. Do you think there's going to be any change in that strategy in case you know uh, there is a uh, change in the government, uh, uh, or do you think there's a bipartisan bipartisan support uh, from moving supply chain dependent dependence away from China? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, I think that you know both parties would like, or both candidates would would like a resurgence of traditional U.S. manufacturing, um, but I, I think at least you no know, Biden is realistic enough to realize that that can only occur in a very limited way and that cost differentials are absolutely huge um, and, and favor um, emerging markets. I'd, I would imagine that a Biden presidency would be less aggressive, less belligerent in its dealings with China and that, you know, the reversal of the free trade process which began under Trump will at least be halted under Biden and we will see some thawing in relations between the US and China. So um, I think the idea of more tariffs coming on under a Democratic White House is, is unlikely. If anything, over time, you're likely to see those higher tariffs being unwound and dismantled. Now, the question of whether companies want to diversify their supply chains away from China is is you know, perhaps a separate one. It's only partly linked to tariffs. You know, as we've discussed, you know, COVID is, is a very um, relevant factor here. Um, another one, um, and we hear this a lot in Europe, um, and another relevant factor is um, the green issue and environmental concerns. And we hear it all the time that, you know, should we really be shipping goods in, you know, halfway around the world if they can be manufactured closer to us and you know perhaps that sort of environmental and, and, and social um, agenda will will gain greater prominence um, in in due course now would that benefit India well it would certainly benefit 
and you're from you know looking at the south asian market perspective um you know perhaps not from a european perspective but you know before the pandemic took hold the one of the big agendas was um environmental concern and climate change and you know that's sort of been not completely but that's sort of been forgotten and i wouldn't be surprised if that returns you know once you know perhaps it's when we get a vaccine but when we start worrying so much about the effects of covid well, um, uh, Philip, we have a question from uh, uh, one of our Lakshmi, uh, Lakshmi, uh, Lakshmi, can I unmute it? Yeah. Yes, yes. Can you unmute? Uh, can you ask the question? Sir? Yeah, hi. I know I had a, can you hear me? Hi, yes. I can hear you. Yeah, hi, hi. Uh, thanks for this. See the, uh, you, know, the, the, you know, the whole issue around, uh, you know, the inflation, whether the markets, reflecting, you know, the inflation expectations, whatever they are, uh, you know, we are trying to make sense of uh, why uh, many people believe that believe that uh, this time around this, this is different from the GFC and how the inflation uh, this time is going to be, uh, uh, you know, shoot on the upside compared to the last 10 years when the central banks were unable to manifest inflation. Uh, the one of the things I have I, I want to understand is that uh, when some central banks or some countries are able to uh, maintain a you know uh, a pretty strong currency or pretty strong monetary policy, other countries can get disciplined if they are pursuing inflationary policies. But if all central banks and all governments are in the same boat, the isn't the only equilibrium way out is that uh, globally negative real yields across all bond markets. Uh, isn't that something that um, has an outcome? Because you can only discipline one country if you have an alternative to trade against, but if everybody's making the same choices. And uh, you know this is something, uh, it seems like uh, uh, one way these things could evolve. And second thing is that, what does this mean for the gold? Uh, you know, if, if globally around uh, almost all bond markets start having a negative real yield. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, that's a very good, very good question. Um, uh, not an easy one to answer because there are so many things going on. I think, you know, first if I go back to the earlier point you made um, about the difference between now and the GFC, um, global financial crisis. Big difference is that the financial sector is in much better shape than it was a decade or more ago. So banks are able to lend. You don't have that, those credit crunch type issues which. Um, have lasting effects on the um, the economy, so that and, and inflation, and that's a, a, a very positive point. Um, I think, firstly, if if you're looking at you know hugely negative interest rates, is it inflationary? Well, you, you hope it avoids disinflation and deflation, and and that's really um, the point of the change in the Fed's framework, for example. We've had a massive economic shock. So looking at the UK figures, for example, the, in two months, the UK economy contracted by 25%. Now, I know the Indian GDP figures the other day were, 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 were pretty horrible as well. But when you've got a massive economic shock of that scale and magnitude, then you need a, you know, a, a big market response. And you know, central banks have done their bit with you know, zero or negative rates, QE in many more jurisdictions than um, the post-crisis environment. Um, and, you know, that's why you've got sort of negative real bond yields, you know, not just the, the level of interest rates, but the fact that you've got massive buyers of those instruments. Um, I don't think it's inflationary um, as such, because you need a, a very expansionary stance, very loose monetary stance. The key is you know, when central banks unwind that stance and they get their timing right. Um, what's it mean for other instruments? Yes, absolutely. I mean, we did we did see the, the, the rise in gold, didn't we, a few weeks ago on the back of, well, what's going on in bond markets. Um, the other factor, of course, was the, the, the weakening in the dollar, um, which pushed the gold price up in dollar terms. Um, and, and gold's an interesting indicator. I'm, I, I don't claim to be an expert on it at all, um, but it, it often tells you something and then the trick is to decipher what it's telling you. But yeah, I, I think if you get very abrupt market moves, which 
investors can't or economists can't explain fully, then you will see instruments such as gold rally, silver rallying, um, dare I say Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies as well, uh, because they simply don't understand and don't trust conventional markets. So we, we may get episodes like that over the next couple of years, but um, we, we think that there's a, a good rationale for the central banks doing what they're doing, um, a very easy monetary stance, and at some point when appropriate, they will begin to unwind that stance. Okay, thank you. So, uh, uh, yeah, go ahead. Is there a question? We have, yes, we have one from Mr. Abhishek Khan. I can yeah. unmute him now. Hello. Yes, Mr. Das, go ahead. Yeah. Hi. Uh, so my question is about uh, the big debate, uh, which you mentioned earlier, also about inflation and deflation. The, this time around, we we are told that it's not a central bank printing money. They did all the QEs and they failed to get inflation. But this time around, it is government which is spending a lot and fiscal deficit is on a rise. So there is a difference between a central bank printing money versus government spending money. Because when government spends money, it is putting money direct into the hands of and they will spend and that can lead to inflation however uh, the debate uh, uh, debate against inflation is that unless your money multiplier goes up so it's not just m3 growth which uh, leads into the inflation your money multiplier should also grow to lead to the inflation so where do you stand in that debate and what is what are the monitors key monitor monetary monitors which we need to watch to understand which way we are heading thanks yeah, that's a very good question. Again, you know, the, the debate will rage on here. Um, I think, you know, I, I still get lots of questions about the extent of QE causing a lot of inflation. And I think the technically correct answer is, and as, as you quite correctly pointed out, is that, yeah, you will get inflation, but you're not putting money in the hands of individuals and companies. It's going into fund managers. Um, and therefore, what you get is asset price inflation. And that's one of the channels through which QE is effective and, and, and stimulates growth. I think on fiscal policy, what should we look out for? I mean, yes, the, the use of fiscal policy has been uh, more active this time. And, and that's been because interest rates have been so close to zero in a lot of economies that fiscal policy has had to be deployed to um, give economies the necessary stimulus. Um, what should we watch out for? Well, I think it, it's a little bit easier, if anything, if, you, if you're monitoring the effects of fiscal policy in the sense that perhaps what you're doing is you know, looking at conventional economic indicators, you know, how, how's demand doing? Um, you know, are we seeing a big tightening in the labour market? Because I'd argue that, you know, that's a, you know, perhaps a lead indicator of inflation, though in the US and the UK, low unemployment rates didn't really trigger big, big wage rises. Um, and something that I am keen on, and again, I think you, you touched on this as well, is um, how do you affect money multipliers? And you've got to, you have to monitor the monetary indicators as well. I think it's totally wrong to look at, you know, fiscal indicators, monetary indicators separately, they both affect each other. So if you cut taxes, what happens is people will borrow more because they've got more income and that will come up in the monetary indicators. So not only would I look at those conventional economic macro indicators, I also look very closely at the monetary indicators too. And um, I, I think, you know, the recognizing that the different bits of the economy are integrated and not looking at each of them in isolation is a very important factor. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Okay, we have another question from Mr. Parmesh Karan Krishnan. Uh, yes, uh, hello. Uh, does this uh, cheap money mean lower cost of capital or will the printing of US dollar devalue value of money faster? Yeah, I, I'd argue we're not going to see um, a big um, rise in inflation um, net. I think I would argue, and I think I have argued, that um, the post-pandemic environment is net disinflationary, albeit with some pockets of higher prices, as, as I've explained. There is a danger that, um, regarding specifically the cost of capital, that if governments are too lax with fiscal policy, 
that investors will begin to doubt a country's fiscal credibility and will start becoming more cautious about buying its instruments. I'd argue that probably doesn't happen in the States. Reserve currency, you know, the US has more latitude. Um, it matters more in countries in Europe, for example, the United Kingdom. The danger is that if you, I mean, for example, to quote the, the UK metrics, we're likely to see a budget deficit this year, fiscal year, of in excess of 15% of GDP, um, possibly 20%. Um, outstanding debt to GDP, already 100%. If that continues, investors might say, look, you know, we need a premium to invest in your paper and therefore long-term interest rates rise and therefore the cost of raising capital to corporates will rise on the back of higher uh, government bond yields as well. And, and that is a danger given you know the size of the deterioration in fiscal positions right throughout Europe. What you do to avoid that is you try and demonstrate your fiscal credibility, not by a preemptive tightening in policy that's too early, but by announcing a series of policies and perhaps pre-announcing them. And we're all supposed to have a budget in the UK in November. We expect the finance minister or the chancellor, as we call him, Rishi Sunak, who actually I rate very highly, uh, uh, to say, right, we'll start with very minor tax increases. But what we're going to do perhaps is to increase corporate taxation over the next two to three years, but not starting for a year to 18 months. And that will ward off the danger, which I think you've quite correctly pointed out, um, which is that you know, looser fiscal policy could have a detrimental effect on the cost of capital um, from a corporate perspective. Do you, do you believe that equities should be looking at the cheaper money which the Fed is printing or 